0: Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Vice President of AWS Global Infrastructure and Customer Support, Peter DeSantis.
1: Hi, welcome to reInvent 2018, thank you for joining us. I hope you enjoyed your first full day at reInvent 2018. As always, we're blown away by the passion of everyone here, and we relish the opportunity to interact with so many customers and technologists. We're looking forward to a really fun week. Those of you who attended this keynote last year uh, remember that we were lacking one really important element, beer. Not only do we have beer and other refreshments tonight, everyone had a beer or whatever you prefer? Good. We also had beer koozies and commemorative pins. Now, pins are being offered for a lot of activities this week. Uh, Air drumming, tatanka, trivia night. But Monday Night Live is the only keynote to have its own commemorative pin. So please make sure you get one before you leave. All right, a lot has happened during the last year. Tonight, I'm gonna share with you some of the products and features we've released and also give you a peek into the innovation that underpins those releases. I'll discuss innovations in our global infrastructure, silicon, and everything in between. We also have some fantastic guest speakers who are gonna tell you about the really exciting things they're doing on behalf of their customers. They're here tonight to share their journey innovating on the AWS cloud. So with that, let's get started. The AWS Global Infrastructure has millions of customers globally, running every imaginable use case and incorporates many of the learnings that we have made from the years of experience building and operating this massive scale infrastructure. We have by far the most experience and the strongest operational performance of any cloud provider. Let's start off tonight with an update on our global infrastructure. The AWS cloud spans 19 geographic regions and we have announced five additional regions in Sweden, Bahrain, Italy, Hong Kong, and South Africa. AWS regions are geographic points on the map, and it's helpful to think of them this way when you're deciding where to run your application or where to store your data. But when you see a map like this, it's easy to underestimate what a region is. Each of these locations is not simply a data center, not even close. Each of these regions is made up of multiple data centers that are geographically separated into what we call availability zones. Each availability zone is a data center, or in most cases, many data centers, and is engineered to provide full independence from other availability zones in the same region. All regions have two or more availability zones. All new regions have three or more availability zones. Some regions have as many as six availability zones. In total, we have 57 availability zones. By having multiple fully independent availability zones in every region, customers can easily write their applications using common replication techniques that wouldn't work over further distances. Having consistent access to multiple availability zones in every region also allows customers to deploy to any region and keep their application and data in that region. This is really different from other cloud providers who often refer to a single data center as a region or a part of a data center as an availability zone. We mean something very specific when we talk about regions and availability zones. Because of this, Gartner has recognized the AW approach to regions and availability zones as the preferred approach to running enterprise applications that require high availability. Let's take a quick minute to look deeper at an availability zone. Each availability zone is a big partition of our infrastructure. All availability zones start as a single data center But most availability zones grow to multiple data centers. Today, our largest availability zone has 14 data centers. And each data center is very large. Some can have as many as 300,000 servers. So availability zones are big. Each availability zone is a fully isolated partition of our infrastructure. Availability zones are separated from other availability zones by meaningful distance, not across the street, but meaningfully separated. The exact distance depends on the specific geographic attributes of the region, but at least a mile, and in most cases, many miles. This distance provides fault tolerance for each availability zone and protects it from shared fate with other availability zones in the region. Each availability zone also has its own independent power infrastructure, not just separate power lineups and generators, but fully isolated power. Each availability zone is also connected to other availability zones and to the transit centers that provide connectivity to the rest of the world for a highly redundant, highly scaled network. To make availability zones work, you need to provide really high throughput, really low latency networking but you need to avoid the networking approaches that can lead to shared failures. Let's take a look at the physical network inside of an AWS region. One of the important things we do to make the networking between availability zones really highly available is we deploy a lot of physical network capacity. Excess capacity is the network engineer's best friend. And our regional model allows us to deploy a massive amount of connectivity at low cost. In one of our largest regions alone, we have 388 fiber spans between availability zones and the transit centers that connect the availability zones to the rest of the world. In aggregate, this fiber provides 4,947 terabits of connectivity just inside that one region. So that's a lot of capacity and that allows customers to have a really highly available network. To add this much capacity, you need to be hyper-focused on cost. One way to reduce cost is to get more fibers in the same conduit. You can always dig a new trench, but this really isn't as cost-effective as you might imagine. You can also use dense wave division multiplexing, or DWDM, but again, this is expensive. So if you can cost-effectively put more fibers through the same conduit, you can get more capacity at lower cost. The fiber optic cable here was first deployed several years ago, and James Hamilton, who did this talk two years ago in 2016, talked about it here. At that time, this was the most dense fiber optic cable available. It packs 3,456 fibers into that two-inch conduit. This cable, on the right, gets 6,912 fibers into that same conduit. That's twice the capacity of the older cable. It's not often you get gains like this in the physical world. We designed this cable with one of our partners and became the first company in the world to deploy it earlier this year. It's innovations like these, at every layer of our infrastructure, that help us to continue to add more scale at lower cost. Before I move on, I want to caution you about something. We've spent a lot of time tonight, and over the last 10 years, talking about availability zones and how they enable cost-effective, high-availability, high-durability applications. And we have been very happy with the way this message has resonated with our customers. Today, all of our largest customers employ availability zones for their applications. As availability zones have become the new normal, you see more and more providers talk about their zones. But how do you know you're getting a real availability zone? Here's how one well-known cloud provider describes their zones on their detail page. Others say far less. Usually, most, should. We have found that customers generally aren't okay with usually having power, or usually having cooling. And your customers are not okay with your services usually working. So if you rely on availability zones to build high availability applications, how do you know that they're really independent? It's getting harder to know. But if a provider uses usually when they describe how they separate their availability zones, be suspicious. And if a provider only has availability zones in a small percentage of their regions, be suspicious. And if the latency to instances inside the availability zone is not much different than the latency to instances in other availability zones, be suspicious. And if a single power event causes impact to services across multiple availability zones or even multiple regions, be very suspicious. Okay, let's get back to looking at the network. Let's build a map. We'll start with the 19 public AWS regions that I discussed earlier. Now we'll add our points of presence. We have 150 global points of presence. We use these points of presence to directly peer with the thousands of eyeball networks across the world. In addition, to these points of presence, we have a network of direct connect locations. We'll add those now. We have 89 direct connect locations and twice as many partners who enable the connect as any other provider that enable connectivity to these locations. These locations and partners enable AWS customers to peer with us directly across the world and then send their data to any AWS region using the AWS global network. Now that we've talked about the ways customers can can access the global network, let's look at the network itself. This is a big network. And remember, all this networking connects into the regional networks that I talked about earlier. In total, this is the most highly scaled, purpose-built global cloud network ever assembled. And it's growing really fast. I won't discuss all the legs, obviously, But I'll give you a few highlights. We talked about our participation in the Hiawaka undersea cable, which runs from Australia to the US. This cable is now in production. We also recently announced our participation in the Jupiter cable, which runs from Japan to the US. This new cable will provide significant new capacity on this critical backbone route when it becomes operational in 2020. Finally, we recently announced the Bay to Bay Express cable, which provides a direct path from Hong Kong to Singapore to the US. When this new cable comes online in 2021, it'll provide the best availability for traffic between those locations. These are just a few of the projects we're working on. We're actively working on projects across the Atlantic, in India, in the Middle East, and in parts of Africa. This is a big area of continued investment for the AWS global infrastructure. So why does this big network matter? To understand what's unique about the AWS global network, let's start by understanding how the internet works. The internet's an amazing place. It's made up of hundreds of providers who operate independent, highly connected networks. This visualization, provided by the Center for Applied Internet Data Analysis, is an interesting map of the internet. The networks around the edge of this drawing are the eyeball networks. These are the networks you're normally trying to reach. And the networks in the middle are the highly connected networks that route packets between those networks. All of these networks use big iron network gear and loosely coupled routing protocols to connect to each other and effectively move packets around. And this works surprisingly well. For a massively distributed system with no central authority, made up of a large number of cooperative but competing participants, the internet is a great success. But there are downsides to this traditional approach. First, packets get handed off from one provider to the next, and those providers have limited visibility into the health of the networks that they're handing the packets off to. Additionally, when something goes wrong, and things always go wrong, like a fiber cut or a router failure, well, Each provider has to process a whole bunch of information, routing information, from their neighbors, and they have to recalculate a bunch of information about where to send packets. In networks as large as the internet, this can take minutes, even for the largest routers. And this, in turn, can lead to network congestion as the networks rebalance. Finally, since all the participants are making independent decisions, it is not uncommon for multiple participants to decide to recover from an issue by sending traffic to the same place. This can lead to too many participants choosing to send traffic down one route, which in turn can result in more congestion and more recalculation. Things generally get back to normal in a couple minutes, but it's not uncommon for noticeable packet delivery delays during these events. People often colloquially refer to this as internet weather. This approach to global networking is fine for most applications. It's cost effective and it's highly reliable. And most applications do great with the sort of performance I just described. But some applications, these sorts of events can be very disruptive. Think about voice or video or highly interactive games. Or consider when you need to communicate between software services in two different parts of the world. For these sorts of applications, there is a better approach. Unlike the internet, where each participant must make routing decisions with minimal information, with the AWS Global Network, we have complete visibility into every attribute of the network. We know the latency and the capacity of every link, and we know the utilization of every link through our real-time monitoring. This visibility ensures that we always have the capacity we need everywhere in the network. And it allows us to continually model the impact of any failure and program the network to respond immediately by sending packets down redundant paths that have both adequate capacity and similar latency. So unlike the decentralized approach of the internet, this allows us to handle failures in a way that's almost imperceivable to applications. And because we connect to all of those networks around the edge of that map I showed you earlier, we can use the AWS global network to route traffic directly to those end user networks and avoid the downsides of the internet approach. What I really want to talk to you about tonight is how you can take advantage of the AWS global network. As I mentioned, much of our customer traffic already flows over this massive network. And you can already use it explicitly by using features like AWS Direct Connect. You also use it when your applications communicate between AWS regions, assuring your applications get consistent performance and low network variability. But what if you wanna use the AWS Global Network to optimize your applications? Tonight, I'm excited to announce AWS Global Accelerator. AWS Global Accelerator makes it easy for you to improve the performance and availability of your application by taking advantage of the AWS Global Network. Let's briefly look at the benefits of the AWS Global Accelerator. We've been talking about network performance, so let's start there. AWS Global Accelerator improves application performance by allowing you to use the AWS Global Network to serve your customer traffic. Your customer traffic is routed from your end users to the closest AWS edge location, and from there, traverses the congestion-free, redundant, highly available AWS Global Network. In addition to improving performance, AWS Global Accelerator has built-in fault isolation, which instantly reacts to changes in the network health or in your application's configuration. Finally, with AWS Global Accelerator, you can control how traffic is routed to each of your regional endpoints. You can use forwarding policies, such as health, latency, and geographic location, making it easy to run your application across multiple regions to achieve globally optimized performance and extremely high availability. So we talked a lot already tonight about how we manage our global network, but AWS customers have a global network of their own. Your network is made up of your VPCs and your accounts, and maybe your VPN and DX connections between your on-premise infrastructure and AWS. So we asked ourselves, how can we make it easier for our customers to manage their global networks? Tonight, we're excited to announce AWS Transit Gateway a new service that allows you to interconnect thousands of VPCs across thousands of AWS accounts and into your global network. Thanks. All right. In addition to making it easy to manage your global network, AWS Transit Gateway provides a number of other benefits. First, with a single set of controls, you can easily and quickly connect to your centrally managed gateway and grow your network easily and quickly. You can also use native AWS services, including CloudWatch and VPC flow logs for security and monitoring. This integration allows your team to centrally monitor your network and respond to any issue that you have on your network. Transit Gateway makes it easy to implement and maintain compliance and security policies. Finally, Transit Gateway allows you to provide better scalability. For example, you can create multiple VPN connections and distribute traffic across all of those VPCs, uh, to all of your VPCs, giving you scalable on-demand bandwidth between your on-premise environment and your AWS network. Transit Gateway is another way that we're innovating to enable customers to have secure, easy-to-manage networking across both their on-premise and their AWS cloud environment. All right, now I would like to introduce you to Chris Dill, Director of Platforms for Epic Games, the creator of Fortnite, the world's most popular game, and a current global phenomenon.
0: Thank you, Peter. I'm, uh, it's great to be here tonight to uh, share the story of Epic Games. Uh, a lot of you probably know Epic's from Games, some very popular games like Gears of War or Fortnite. So Epic's actually been around since around 1991. We've continually added new games to our roster since then. Uh, today, we have over 800 employees in 25 different studios around the world, and we actually have several more studios that we'll have even by the end of the year. So uh, we're not only about games either, though, despite our name. So we also created something called the Unreal Engine, which is a suite of creation tools that developers use to create some amazing interactive experiences. Uh, Unreal has been the core of Epic's business for many, many years. We have over 7 million developers around the world who use Unreal Engine today so to build highly interactive experiences on PC, console, virtual reality, mixed reality, and more other platforms. So let's show you a little bit about the power of the Unreal Engine. So, Here's an example. Uh, this is actor Andy Serkis of a uh, Lord of the Rings movie and Gollum fame. So we're actually, in real time, transferring the facial expressions from Andy onto these digital characters. Uh, before this type of technology, you, know, you might have to record it and then play it back later. Uh, but now you can see a near final composition in real time. Pretty amazing stuff. Uh, could talk about the engine all day, but let's talk about Fortnite. So, uh, again, a lot of you know, Fortnite, uh, it's become a pop culture phenomenon. It's a free-to-play, 100-player, last-man-standing game. Uh, And Fortnite has attracted quite a lot of players. Uh, In fact, we have 200 million players now worldwide, peaking at over 8 million concurrent players at a time. So, imagine, after skydiving out of a floating bus, shooting it out with other players and building different structures on your way to winning the game, what we like to call a victory royale. Uh, if we have millions of current players playing the game right now. So let's show you what's actually powering all of this. So around 2014, uh, Epic Games began a transition from a developer of games, like Gears of War, uh, to a publisher of online games using a games as a service model. We needed a reliable cloud partner so we could really focus on innovating with our products and on our platform. Uh, and as you can see, like, we're heavily reliant on AWS now with all the different services we use, And it's become a critical part of our operations for both Fortnite and the platform that powers it. So uh, AWS has really enabled us to grow. Uh, Fortnite has grown more than 100 times in the last 12 months alone, so scalability has been really key for us here. Uh, we run our game servers in more than two dozen availability zones, tw- sorry, 26 availability zones around the world right now, and we have an almost 10 times difference in workloads between peak and low peak in any particular region. So elasticity is really, really important for us that the cloud provides. Um, so with Fortnite, we really test the boundaries of scale. Uh, As part of the storytelling for Fortnite, we put on these one-time events that last only several minutes each, right? We invite all of our players to come in at the same time and participate in these events. And our first event, we launched a giant rocket ship. Uh, We invited all 125 million of our players at the time to come in and play, all at the same time. Uh, We achieved a level of scale never before seen before in Fortnite, possibly any game in the world. Um, and then we did it again uh, fairly recently uh, with an event the community dubbed Kevin the Cube. Uh, it's a little harder to explain. Uh, you had to be there. Uh, look it up on YouTube or Twitch and, and you can see all about it, so it's really cool. Um, but we really stretched the capacity of ADS to the limits with these events. Um, so let's take a closer look about how we actually accomplish all that. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Fortnite runs primarily on AWS. We've got worldwide game server fleet that runs across multiple availability zones, a set of back-end services, databases, and website that support all the game operations. We also have a very large analytics pipeline that supports all of our products, including Unreal Engine, Fortnite, and others in the future. Uh, we have dozens of microservices using a variety of technologies, from J- Java, Akka, and even Go. Um, don't have time to talk about it all, but let's talk about our analytics pipeline. So... Uh, these stats largely speak for themselves. Uh, we have game clients that are constantly sending data to us, and analytic pipelines that handle enormous amount of telemetry data coming in from users, and a large scale infrastructure for managing all of that data. 125 million events per minute, leading to a staggering five petabytes of data per month that we're at right now. Uh, so, how do we manage all of this? So our entire analytics pipeline runs on the AWS infrastructure. We have telemetry from multiple sources uh, coming into our Kinesis stream, where we have a real-time pipeline driven largely by Spark, DynamoD for temporary storage, feeding uh, tools like Grafana, a scoreboards API, which I'll talk about in a little bit, and some real-time SQL-type tools uh, that analysts can use for analysis. Uh, we also have a batch pipeline, where all data, incoming data comes into S3. S3 is our data lake. It's where we store everything. Uh, and then on top of that, we do a bunch of EMR processing to batch that up into tables. Uh, and then you use Hive over S3 to actually expose those tables right, to tools like Tableau and, and other things that we want to do. Uh, and then finally, we have a bunch of ad hoc SQL analysis tools that analysts can use to do deeper dive on gameplay telemetry data. So what do we do with all this data? So one of the things we do is we monitor service health. So uh, the client is a great early warning mechanism for a lot of different types of issues. The client really understands the user experience. There's a lot of things we can actually monitor from the client side that you can't actually monitor from back end at all. Things like ISP outages and other types of issues like that. Um, So another thing we use is uh, tournaments. So we've actually run multiple tournaments over the last year for Fortnite um, using the, and Tournament Masters set up a bunch of custom rules uh, for basically determining who wins the game. Uh, and we give out everything from swag to money as prizes. We've actually announced over $100 million in prizes uh, over the next year alone that we'll be giving away for these competitions. Uh, then we use it for basic KPIs, all the publishing KPIs that you use to run the business. Uh, things like you know, average revenue per user, month active user, daily active user, et cetera. Uh, and then finally, we use it for deeper game analysis, basically looking at the design of the game uh, to make it better. So as we look ahead, um, one of the things we look, think about is global resiliency. While a lot of the game servers themselves are distributed, a lot of our servers are actually still running in a single availability zone, which isn't great if we have a problem or in, in terms of the number of users impacted. So always something that we're trying to improve on. Uh, with, the, with our growth, we always want to find better ways of managing these microservices. So we're looking at t- uh, technologies like EKS and Kubernetes uh, to help with some of the management tools. Uh, and then being one of the biggest games in the world, we have to be really vigilant against a bunch of bad actors who are just constantly attacking our services, uh, trying to gain favor. Uh, so we're looking at things like Amazon dude and other things to help with threat detection. Um, we're also looking at tools like Neptune uh, to build a social graph and potentially implement some anti-fraud tools. Uh, so we've been really busy, and recently we launched a new limited time mode for Fortnite called Food Fight. The battle of Derberger versus Pizza Pit has begun. One wall, two entrees, the food fight is on. Let's watch the trailer. As you can see, there's really no limit to the zany antics we can get away with in Fortnite with things like we do like that. Please, everyone, enjoy the rest of the event, and I will see you at the food fight. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Chris. Had I known I would have brought beer and tomatoes for everybody to throw, but hard to follow. Just like yesterday's score, yesterday's innovation can become irrelevant in short order. One of the things that customers appreciate most about AWS is our rapid pace of innovation. We know that it's essential to maintain this pace of innovation to provide the most compelling experience and to earn our customers' trust every day. Tonight. I wanna review with you some of the exciting capabilities that we've launched this last year. And if you're up for it, announce a few more. All right. If you joined me here last year, I spent some time talking to you about how we evolved the EC2 compute architecture over the last several years into something we call the Nitro system. Let me start by quickly reviewing what the Nitro system is and why it's important. What you see here is a simplified view of what a classic cloud hosting platform looks like. It starts with a server and a virtualization layer. This virtualization layer includes a hypervisor, but it also includes a lot of custom functionality to do all sorts of important things. For example, there is software to secure, manage, and abstract the network according to the user's VPC configuration. And there's software to do something similar For storage. Finally, there is functionality that monitors, manages, and further secures the instances. While some of this can be done in a remote service, much of it has to be done on the server. And while providers can spend a lot of time optimizing that code, the laws of physics here are simple. This software will always be running on the same server as the customer's instances. Several years ago, we started an effort to completely reinvent the EC2 infrastructure. The basic idea was simple. Move all this functionality off the main server and onto specialized host local hardware where it can run without consuming any of the resources of the server. We evolved to this architecture over several years. And last year, here, we delivered the C5 instance which was the first EC2 instance which completely offloaded all the EC2 software to the Nitro system. You can see in this picture all the same stuff is there, but now it's running on the Nitro server rather than the main host. I discussed three major benefits of Nitro last year. The first benefit is improved security. While the original EC2 architecture was secured by the hypervisor and several EC2 specific software innovations, By by offloading the software to a separate system, we can create an even stronger security boundary. With a separate route of trust and narrow APIs between the server and the Nitro controller, we can more strongly validate the security of the instance and our EC2 environment. The second benefit is improved performance. We already touched on this, but by moving all of this away from the main server, we can dedicate the server resources strictly to the customer's workloads. Also, by using specialized hardware, we can optimize the most performance critical parts of the EC2 software stack. The final benefit is familiarity. Because the virtualization code lives off the main server, we can present native networking and storage abstractions directly to the EC2 server. This means we no longer have to run a hypervisor at all. and the security benefits i just discussed is what allows us to run bare metal instances so there's actually a fourth benefit that i didn't discuss last year and that's pace of innovation by moving the ec2 software off of the main server and onto the nitrous system we have made it easier to deliver new infrastructure to our customers we no longer have to port and optimize our software to each new hardware variant instead We can quickly add the Nitro system to any hardware and all of a sudden have a fully functioning EC2 instance. AWS has the most comprehensive portfolio of instances of any provider. The Nitro system allowed us to accelerate the number of new instances, and we introduced twice as many instances in the last year as we did the year before. This is a trend that we expect to continue. Before we look at some of these new instances, let me briefly talk about what I see as a very important and exciting trend. Designing a new hardware platform or building a new processor is very expensive. If you spread this cost over a large number of servers, the cost, the incremental cost to each server is very low. On the other hand, if you need a small number of a server, it's hard to economically justify any specialization. Therefore, in traditional data centers, a limited number of processor types got designed into a small number of server designs. Each company only had a handful of a given server type, so specialization made no sense. As a result, most server workloads stubbornly stayed on general purpose processors and homogeneous server designs. But the cloud changes all this. In a successful and broadly adopted cloud computing system, Even long tail workloads can number in the thousands or tens of thousands. Where before, it was impossible for an enterprise to justify specialization. In the cloud, these investments can be spread over much larger usage. In many cases, hardware specialization can provide significant cost benefits and allow you to give your customers a better experience. Suddenly, it's not only possible to use hardware optimization, it's almost required. Let's take a look at some of the recently launched computing options. Processor speeds have largely leveled off, and instead, core density has been increasing. But sometimes, single-threaded performance is paramount. This can either be because your application is absolutely latency-bound, and you need the best single-threaded performance, like online games, or, because your application requires you to pay high per-core licensing fees. We recently launched the Z1D instance, which delivers high single-threaded performance via a custom Intel Xenon scalable processor. This processor provides 12 cores, all capable of simultaneous sustained performance up to 4 gigahertz. This is the fastest of any cloud instance. There are a number of unique innovations that underpin this instance. First is the collaboration between Intel and AWS to produce the custom processor. But additionally, this processor needs special power and cooling because it requires more power and significantly more cooling than a regular processor. These investments would be hard to justify at small scale in a traditional data center. And of course, When you're trying to deliver the absolute best performance, you don't want to tax any of that performance with your software. With the Nitro system, we can deliver all the performance of this custom processor directly to our customers. While some applications benefit from high core speed, others need as much memory as possible. As enterprises continue to process more and more real-time data to make faster business decisions, deployments of in-memory databases like SAP HANA are continuing to expand. We already had a number of options for customers needing large memory instances. Our X1 and our X1E instances provided two and four terabytes of memory. But customers asked for something even bigger to run their most demanding in-memory workloads. So we recently released the EC2 high memory instances with up to 12 terabytes of memory. It has an eight socket platform that uses the latest generation Intel Platinum Skylake processor and provides 448 computing threads. This is the most compute and memory available on any EC2 instance. Now, when other providers tried to solve this problem, they chose to offer high end servers like these as hosting options. Rather than providing a native instance, they would manage a host for you and then connect it to their cloud environment the same way they would connect to any external data center. This means you have to deal with multiple environments, tolerate higher latency, and ultimately accept that your large memory instance isn't an instance at all. But with the Nitro uh, system, we didn't have to make those compromises. These new EC2 high memory instances are a completely new hardware platform for us. But by integrating the Nitro system, we were able to offer the same networking and the same access to AWS services as any other instance. Also, when you have 12 terabytes of memory, the last thing you need is a hypervisor. No hypervisor is designed to run on such large memory servers. By using the Nitro system, we can provide the EC2 high memory server as a bare metal instance, allowing customers to run directly on the hardware. We're not done here. For the largest HANA workloads, we plan to offer even larger instances, up to 24 terabytes of memory, next year. You may have seen that earlier this month, we announced variants of several of our most popular instances with AMD processors. These instances use the new AMD EPYC processors and provide similar performance to their non-AMD equivalents at 10% lower cost. The Nitro system allowed us to easily and quickly qualify these new instances without the development work that would usually come from qualifying a new processor. We've been very excited about our ability to roll out hardware innovation faster. But we asked ourselves, could we do more to accelerate? Last year, I talked to you about Anapurna. We started working with Annapurna Systems to deliver an early version of our Nitro system several years ago. We were so impressed by the team and the technology that we acquired the Anapurna Systems team in early 2015. While we've been really excited about the team's vision and progress on the Nitro system, we asked them to start thinking about what an AWS designed and built server processor might look like. Tonight, I'm excited to announce the EC2-A1 instance, which is powered by the AWS Graviton processor. By focusing specifically on scale-out workloads and just the functionality required for the AWS environment, the A1 delivers uh, delivers up to 45% lower cost for some of your workloads. The AWS server processor used to power the A1 instance is the AWS Graviton processor from Annapurna Labs. The Graviton processor is based on a 64-bit ARM architecture and features 16 cores per processor. The Graviton processor will allow us to build, iterate, and innovate with feedback directly from you, our customers. A1 instances are ideal for scale-out workloads, such as containerized microservices, web servers or caching fleets, and they can deliver up to 45% lower costs for these workloads. Additionally, the A1 instance allows developers easy access to an ARM-based development environment. We expect the A1 instance to be popular with educators and enthusiasts across the ARM developer community. And of course... To use a new ARM-based processor, you need great software and tooling. There are several Linux distributions available for the A1 instance, including Amazon Linux, Red Hat, and Ubuntu. There's also an EC2-optimized AMI with Docker support, and the A1 instance is supported by the AWS developer tools, including CodePipeline, CodeCommit, and Cloud9. That's a lot of new computing. But we're far from done. We have a 12-year partnership with Intel, and we're very happy with the joint innovation that that partnership has and continues to, to generate. I talked about a few of our recently launched Intel instances, but we're also working closely with Intel to support their next generation Intel Xenon processor known as Cascade Lake. We believe this will enable even lower prices for a number of EC2 server or instance types. We're also working closely with our customers in Intel to explore new technologies like Deep Learning Boost, which will enable inference acceleration for customers using Intel processors. But we're also excited to bring new computing options to the AWS Cloud, and we believe these new options will allow you to better optimize your applications. AWS offers by far the largest variety of computing options of any provider, and we don't intend to slow down anytime soon. One place where all the benefits of the Nitro system are on display is bare metal instances. I announced bare metal instances last year in this keynote and we have been steadily expanding the offering since then. Bare metal provides your application with direct access to the processor, memory and storage resources of the hardware. Bare metal provides the same performance and access to AWS services as a standard instance, but allows you to run your own operating, or hyper- operating system or hypervisor natively. This makes bare metal instances ideal for workloads that need to run uh, run on non-virtualized hardware, workloads that need a specific hypervisor, or or running software with customer-hostile licensing, which requires you to run on non-virtual hardware. We have recently added several new bare-metal instances, and the Nitro system will allow us to continue enabling new families going forward. So we expect a lot more bare-metal instances. Here are some of the customers and partners that are using bare metal instances. Many bare metal customers find they need to run a small number of bare metal instances to meet some specific requirements, alongside a much larger classic EC2 fleet. Last year, we announced VMware Cloud on AWS, an integrated cloud offering jointly developed by AWS and VMware. VMware Cloud on AWS delivers a highly scalable, secure, and innovative service that allows organizations to seamlessly migrate and extend their on-premise VMware vSphere infrastructure to the AWS Cloud. VMware is also a bare metal customer, and they've created an entire new business and transformed themselves by providing VMware Cloud on AWS via bare metal instances. So we've looked at a lot of great computing options tonight. I'm pretty partial to compute networking, But the reality is, storage is important too. We have a number of storage options for AWS customers. We have services like Amazon S3 that offer fully managed high durability object storage, and Amazon EBS, which offers fully managed block storage, and Amazon EFS, which offers a fully managed elastic file system. And all these options are useful for different types of applications. But sometimes you just need a local disk. We have a number of instances that provide local storage. For example, the I family provides large amounts of high-performance SSD storage, and the D family provides large amounts of local hard drives. But customers told us, sometimes they just need a small amount of SSD. We listened, and earlier this year, we released the ability to add local storage to a variety of our most popular instance types. Our compute-optimized, general purpose and memory optimized instances are all now available with local disk options. These instances all use the Nitro system to expose these local disks. So let's look at how the Nitro system has improved the performance of these new local disks. There's lots of ways to benchmark performance. This data is from a standard FIO test. It compares the average and tail latency of our last two generations of I instance to one of our new local disks. The new local disks have an average latency of 20 microseconds per operation compared to 30 microseconds for the i3 instance. That's a 33% improvement against an instance which is optimized for SSD use cases and is widely used for performance-sensitive applications. But where the local disk really shines, where the Nitro system really stands out, is tail latency, that graph on the right. You can see the 99th percentile latency of the Nitro-based local disk compared to the i2 and the i3. The new local disks have 57% lower tail latency. These local disks are the best performing local disks ever offered in the cloud, and that is due in large part to the innovation of the Nitro system. As I mentioned, a few customers have asked us for local disks, and a few customers are using them. All right, I've covered a lot of aspects of performance already tonight. Performance matters a lot, and we spend a lot of time investing in and innovating to provide great performance for your applications. There's one area where performance matters a lot to almost every application, and that's the performance of the data center network. I wanna share with you how we build our data center network and how it helps us provide remarkable performance at low cost. The Nitro system is an important part of this story but it's only a part of it. I'd like to start with a quick history of how we and the rest of the world used to build data center networks. In the old days, the vast majority of networking was delivered as black box appliances, where a small number of providers produced both the hardware and the software needed to run the network, and then delivered that as big iron networking devices. These devices tended to have really high margins, so the overall cost of networking was quite high. And as a result, most computing environments had far less networking than they should have. And this was really a shame, because even with those high-priced networking boxes, only a small portion of your data center spend is really your network. So you never really want to be constrained by the network, but unfortunately, you often were. Equally challenging for us, was that these devices were chock full of every feature. In order to maintain the high premium of this networking gear, providers were eager to pack in any feature that a customer asked for. Most of these features were only used by a very small fraction of the customers, but the sheer volume of features made them operationally complicated and prone to failure. Finally, as a high-scale network provider, we had a unique challenge that we faced which is that none of these network providers had a test environment that mirrored the scale of our production environment. And this meant that networking changes were not really fully tested for our production environment until we deployed them to our production environment. And that's never a good place to be as a customer. When there were issues, it was difficult for the network provider to reproduce the issue in their limited scale environment. This meant it took a long time for them to identify, diagnose, fix and test fixes. Needless to say, this was not a good place to be as a cloud provider. Then something, interesting, something very exciting started happening. New companies began to emerge in the networking space. Some of these companies began producing ASICs, the specialized processors at the core of all modern switches and routers. Other companies began producing optics, the connectors necessary to connect those ASICs to, to fiber and the network and still others began to produce switches. For us, this was the raw material that we needed to drive a revolution in networking. We partnered with these various providers and made deep investments in the software to run our network. Our software, unlike the software I described a moment ago, is relatively simple. It delivers just the functionality we needed to operate and scale our network. Our investment in EC2 network virtualization and more recently the Nitro system also allowed us to push a lot of what you would traditionally call network features out of the network into the Nitro system and focus on building a simple, secure, fast, reliable, and low-cost network. This is a logical picture of what a piece of our network fabric looks like. Each of the circles is an Amazon switch which is built with the components I just described. These switches are connected based on the requirements of the particular area of the network, but they're connected roughly into what you would call a dense Klaus network. The arrangement of switches, this arrangement of switches allows us to scale, and it provides multiple independent paths between uh, any points in the network. So there's lots of redundancy, lots of scale. Um, It's very easy to provide high availability. Together, these attributes allow us to scale the network, provide high availability, and do it all at low cost. At the bottom of this network is where the EC2 hosts live. It's also where the Nitro system that we've discussed comes into play. As we discussed earlier, the Nitro system has dedicated hardware resources that process every packet arriving at every EC2 instance. Packets are filtered based on security policies and fully virtualized based on VPC configurations. And because this all runs on specialized hardware dedicated to the instance, it can be done very, very quickly and consistently and at very low cost. So taking a step back, what you see is a data center network fabric that's been designed to provide airtight security, massive scale, high availability, and low cost. It's designed to be operated at scale and to take advantage of the rapid innovations that are happening across the industry. Meanwhile, you see a deep investment in the software and the hardware at the edge of the network that provides the unique security functionality and features that we require to deliver AWS. The results of this investment can be seen in a constant drumbeat of performance improvements. One of the most important and obvious ways to measure performance is throughput or bandwidth. This chart shows the significant milestones in instance throughput since we launched EC2 in 2006. For the first six years, one gigabit networking was all you could get. In 2012, we introduced our first instance with 10 gigabit networking. Then, four years later, in 2016, we introduced our first instance with 25-gig networking. Now, of course, this story would not be particularly interesting if it ended there. So tonight, I'm happy to announce the general availability of the C5N instance. This one's pretty easy to understand. The C5 provides up to 100 gigabits of network bandwidth. AWS is the first cloud provider to make this capability widely available. C5 instances provide you with four times the network throughput compared to the recently launched last year C5 instance. This enables network-bound applications to more efficiently scale on AWS. Customers can take advantage of this higher network performance to accelerate data transfer to and from S3 reducing data ingestion wait times for applications, and speeding up results. A wide range of applications such as analytics, machine learning, big data, and data lake applications can use this additional network performance. This improvement in network performance is not just limited to the largest size instance. With smaller C5N instances, you can get up to 25 gigabit, or 25 uh, gigabits of network throughput. This allows you to run network-bound workloads at lower cost. And it's not just the networking throughput that's improved. The C5N is built with the latest generation AWS Nitro system, and it provides better network performance on a number of important dimensions. While we're talking about network performance, I wanna talk to you about an area of computing that is notorious for being demanding of their network. High-Performance Computing, or HPC, is well known as one of the most demanding network customers. Its requirements have spawned a parallel industry of network providers and technology for ever greater performance. Our dream has long been to provide the same compelling value of the AWS cloud, including agility, low cost, and elasticity to these demanding applications. These applications are some of the most constrained applications in a traditional on premise data center, stuck in line, waiting for time on a high cost, underscaled compute cluster. And those are the lucky applications. Many of the most potentially impactful applications are in scientific research and lack access to computing entirely. AWS and high performance computing are a perfect match, and we've been getting interest from customers since literally before we launched. When we were building EC2 back in 2005, we had a small number of private beta customers who were giving us feedback on the new service. One of those customers who gave us a ton of helpful feedback was the South African National Bioinformatics Institute, or SAMBI. SAMBI was running an MPI blast application, which allows searching and matching of genetic genetic sequences. And they were running it on the pre-launched EC2 service. The MPI Blast application is what the HPC community would call an embarrassingly parallel application, a far cry from the most demanding HPC applications. But the promise of AWS to transform this critical area of computing was apparent from these early days, and it created a passion amongst many of us to transform AWS into a platform that could serve even the most demanding HPC use case. Our first big investment targeted specifically at HPC was in 2010, when we released the CC1 instance, or the cluster compute instance. This instance type had a specifically engineered network that was one of the first to apply the techniques that I discussed earlier tonight. This instance gave us our first chance to directly interact with customers looking to bring more demanding workloads to the cloud. We followed this release with the CC2 instance, And we actually ran a supercomputing benchmark on the CC2 cluster before we launched it. And we placed number 42 on the top 500 list. We also released our first general purpose GPU about this time. Uh, We called that instance the CG1. Our experience with these cluster compute instances and our interactions with customers using them increased our conviction that we could address the needs of the most demanding HPC applications. We made a decision to converge the cluster compute instances with our normal instance families. And as we continue to increase our network performance over the last several years, customers brought even more demanding applications. With the release of the C5N, we can now address even more network-hungry applications. But we need one more thing to really address the needs of HPC applications. To provide the absolute lowest latency between compute instances, HPC applications need to bypass the kernel and networking stack inside the guest instance and avoid using high-level protocols like TCP. Instead, HPC applications require a reliable datagram protocol supported natively on the network. We've developed an internal protocol that we use for our most demanding applications. We call this protocol a Scalable Reliable Datagram, or SRD. SRD uses its deep knowledge of our data center network fabric, its topology, and its operational characteristics to provide reliable packet delivery with the lowest possible latency. With this knowledge of our network, SRD is able to optimally utilize all paths through our network. And when a particular part of the network fails, it's able to route packets around it without increasing latency. This allows SRD to deliver packets within a cluster with far less variability than protocols like TCP. And SRD is implemented natively in our latest generation Nitro system to assure it performs optimally without consuming any resources on the EC2 hardware. Of course, to make this easy for customers, in order for us to solve customers' need, we need to make it easy for them to use SRD, and we did. Tonight, we're announcing Elastic Fabric Adapter, or EFA, a network adapter for EC2 instances, which enables customers to accelerate the migration of high-performance computing applications to the AWS cloud. EFA provides customers with the network capabilities of on-premise HPC clusters with the on-demand elasticity of the EC2 cloud. HPC applications can now avoid in-instance reliability protocols like TCP and bypass their local kernel and instead reliably send networks over the EC2 network fabric with the lowest possible latency and variability. EFA is available on the new 100 gig instance types like the C5N that I announced earlier tonight. EFA allows HPC applications to scale network sensitive workloads to thousands or tens of thousands of computing cores. EFA also provides native integration with popular open MPI frameworks. We've already integrated with open source library LibFabric, allowing you to run your applications using your preferred MPI framework without making any AWS specific changes. We're very much looking forward to working with customers to take advantage of these new capabilities, And we're looking forward to enabling more HPC applications to run on AWS. Now, I'd like to bring out Dr. Matt Wood, GM of artificial intelligence at AWS. Dr. Wood is very familiar with the real-world problems of constrained computing environments.
2: Good evening, everyone, and thank you, Peter. So we're enjoying a new wave of machine learning that's emerging in the cloud. And every month, we have tens of thousands of active users in virtually every industry building meaningful models using machine learning. But it's easy to forget that it hasn't always been that way. Actually, not that long ago, building machine learning models was the remit of very, very large, well-funded technology companies. And the only other place you could really get it done was the patience and the funding was large research institutions. And so if you were a developer and you wanted to start using machine learning, even five or six years ago, that meant you had to go off and find a university partnership with a group of PhDs ready and willing to work on your problem. Then you had to write a grant application. This is the NSF, NSF grant application handbook. It's a crisp. 181 pages to run through just to figure out how to put the application in. If you get that through and get all the funding that you need, then you get the opportunity to write a really big check. And you hand that over to a hardware vendor. And that hardware vendor takes that check, and then you wait, not weeks, but usually months, while the hardware vendor goes off, builds out your HPC cluster and all the resources that you need. Eventually, it arrives on your loading dock, Uh, You unpack it, you start to rack it, and stack it, and plug it all in, and put the latest versions of what you need, and all the wiring and configuration. Uh, Then you're in the opportunity to start running your algorithm. And then you wait again, usually days, sometimes weeks, sometimes months, for the more sophisticated models to be able to train and learn from the data that you have available. And eventually, you get to evaluate your model. And this one, 47%. That's slightly worse than a coin toss. And what you realize at this point, a couple of years in, is that you are on to something. You really need more data, you need better algorithms, and you'll probably need faster computation. And in this time, of course, your PhDs have graduated and they've all moved on. And so you pretty much have to start again on the treadmill. You go and find a research academic institution to go partner with. You go and apply to the NSS for some funding. They give you some money. Then you write a great big check. The great big check goes off to the hardware vendor. The hardware vendor goes, configures, and delivers all the applications and hardware that you need. You wait for that to be delivered. It arrives on your loading dock. You get it out. You rack it. You stack it. You plug it in and configure it. Then you run your algorithm. And then you wait some more. And eventually, you run your evaluation. And you get your result. And it's slightly better, which means you were onto something. But it also means you probably need more data, better algorithms, and faster computation. And in almost all cases, when it comes to building more sophisticated models, it comes down to these three things. A requirement for more data, better algorithms, and faster computation. Now, the good news is that in the cloud, it's never been cheaper or easier to store large amounts of data. However, having that data stored in S3 is only part of the challenge. You've got to get that data onto your algorithm so the algorithm can start to learn from those examples. And so we've been making meaningful investments in all of these three areas over a number of years to improve the way that you can build models, to make them more sophisticated, and to operate at lower cost. So first thing is being able to move more of your data onto your algorithm. When we launched Amazon SageMaker, which is a fully managed platform for building, training, and deploying machine learning models, we introduced something called pipe mode. Traditionally, with machine learning, when you want to start training with all of that data, potentially tens of millions of files, you had to copy them around your cluster. And that took a ton of time at the beginning of your startup. And then you had to try and get them onto the GPU as quickly as possible. We replaced that with pipe mode. And what pipe mode does is it streams the data directly from S3 onto the cluster and directly onto the GPUs so you can start training. And this provides a meaningful decrease in the time it takes to just start training about a 90% reduction, because you no longer have to copy data all over your cluster. I.O. throughput goes through the roof, because you can just shift more data from S3 to EC2 more quickly and get it onto your GPU. And the result of this is a dramatic decrease of about a third in job execution time. That means your models are training a third faster just by using pipes instead of files. Now, recently, we increased the throughput again, improving this by nine times again. So we're continually improving. Once you get your data onto your algorithm, of course, you typically need better algorithms. You want to be able to extract more data and take advantage of the computational power that you have on the AWS cloud. And we've made meaningful investments on AWS in a range of different frameworks. And our approach here is maybe a little bit different from other vendors. Our approach is that we want all of these frameworks, TensorFlow, MXNet, PyTorch, Keras, Gluon, to work as well as possible on AWS. We actually have separable teams that focus specifically on each of these areas. One of the challenges is with training, you really want to be able to take advantage of not just scale, where you can get as much and as many GPUs as you want from the cloud, but also elasticity. You typically want to be able to balance these as you go. So today, we're introducing a foundational algorithmic improvement, which is available to all algorithms with a reference implementation in MXNet that we call dynamic training. Dynamic training allows you to dynamically adjust the training cluster in real time as you're training. So with dynamic training, you can adjust the capacity as you go. And that means you can start taking advantage of cloud-native technologies like spot instances. You can even start to load in your unused reserved instances when you need them. And then when your mission-critical applications need them, you can just put them back into your pool. And when we were training a model using this approach, varying from about 8 GPUs to 96 GPUs, Uh, we found that we were able to train 50% faster using dynamic training at 30% lower cost. So the cost keeps getting lower as the improvements in performance keep going up. And we're making this available today in MXNet, but we're also going to bring it to TensorFlow and PyTorch over the next couple of months. So let's take a look at faster computation. This is a critical part. Once you've got your data onto your algorithm, you want as much computational firepower to make it work as quickly as possible. And the NVIDIA Volta system is one of the most, it's just a beast for machine learning training. It encodes directly on the silicon the core requirements for the inner loop in deep learning training. There's a new version available, and today we're making it available in an entirely new instance, the most powerful instance available anywhere in the cloud, which we call P3DN. P3DN instances are the most powerful GPU instances, and they're designed for distributed training using that 100 gigabit network that we talked about earlier. You can get the latest version of the V100 Volta. We got 32 gig per GPU. That's a 2x improvement over the current P3. You can use up to 100 gig on the network bandwidth. We've got 96 virtual CPUs running on an Intel Xeon scalable processor with AVX. That's a 1.5x improvement. And jammed in there, we have 2 terabytes of NVMe storage, so you can get fast access to your data locally. So we talked a lot about training and the importance of training, and it is important. Uh, But using those trained models and putting them into production to infer predictions on new data is really what machine learning is all about. And performance really matters there as well. And nowhere is that performance more acutely felt than at the edge. Machine learning models deployed at the edge are becoming increasingly common, both in uh, consumer applications and in industrial applications. And they're deployed there because they're almost always sensitive to latency. You don't want to have to go through a round trip to the cloud and back again if you want to make decisions uh, on how to manage your manufacturing pipeline, or if you want to provide a great experience to your consumers on consumer devices. They also tend to be small with constrained resources. And typically, you don't just run on one hardware platform, but you run on a wide range of diverse hardware. And what this means is that if you want to get the performance that you want at the accuracy that you need, you have to hand-tune the individual neural network models for the specific hardware platforms that you need to run on. And that is time-consuming work by experts that are few and far between. And so today, I'm very pleased to announce a new feature of Amazon SageMaker that we call NEO, a deep learning model compiler that lets customers train models once, and deploy them anywhere with up to a 2x performance improvement. So let's take a look at how this works. Using SageMaker Neo, which is a fully managed environment inside SageMaker, you train your model as you would normally. uh, Then you pass it into our new Neo deep learning compiler, and you select your deployment target, the hardware specific target. And the deep learning compiler will take advantage of everything that it knows, just as you would compile normal C++ code, to be able to take advantage of all of the performance advantages of those individual platforms. And you can build, from a single trained model, multiple deployment targets. Then you just take them, you can run them on EC2, you can run them on SageMaker, you can even run them using Greengrass ML inference, or you can just download them and run them on uh, your devices as you go. So this is a material improvement with just a few clicks. We've been working already with a number of uh, hardware vendors, including Intel, Qualcomm, ARM, Cadence, NVIDIA, and Xilinx for FPGAs. And today, we're also going to make NEO open source. What this means is that other vendors can take the deep learning compiler and the associated runtime and add their own optimizations. It means that as new neural networks become available, they can just start getting added in real time to the compiler and to the runtime. And it means that it's free to incorporate in any app for any device. And so we're able to move more data to the algorithms for faster computation, both in the cloud and at the edge. And what that means is you no longer have to go find the researchers. You no longer have to write the research proposals. You no longer have to hand over those huge checks and you no longer have to wait as all of that hardware is delivered to your loading dock, as you rack, stack, and configure, and eventually build models. And this will allow you to build better models in less time. Now, to hear a little bit about the journey that they've been on in machine learning, it's my great pleasure to introduce Keith Bigelow, the Senior Vice President of Analytics and AI for GE Healthcare. Thanks a lot.
3: Thank you, Matt. I am so glad to be here and to share our story with you. At GE Healthcare, we build the world's best medical devices. We ship tens of thousands of these to 120 countries, generating about 19 billion in revenue, about 3 billion in profit. And tonight I'm here to tell you, we are all in on SageMaker. So imagine later tonight, I'm in a car wreck. An ambulance comes and it whisks me to the closest emergency room. And at that emergency room, the care team is gonna perform a CT scan. And they're gonna understand my injuries, they're gonna plan the surgery, and then they're going to go ahead and execute that surgery. As they sew me up, there's one last thing they need to worry about. And that is they perform an X-ray. And the purpose of the X-ray is to determine Are there any remaining critical conditions? If there are, the radiologist will see those, I'll go back on the operating table, they'll open me up, address them, and then whisk me back to recovery. This is great. And here in Las Vegas, we have a level one trauma center. What does that mean? That means that there's a radiologist seven by 24 to read my scan quickly and accurately. We are so fortunate in the United States because we have about one radiologist for every 10,000 citizens. That means we have incredible coverage in the main major cities. But around the world, and even in the US in rural areas, people aren't so fortunate. So for example, in Kenya, 48 million people, one radiologist for 240,000 lives. This scarcity is a real issue, and it leads to issues of accuracy and timeliness. Imagine I didn't have my car wreck here in Las Vegas. Imagine it was way out in the boonies of Nevada. Probably wouldn't be a radiologist there. My scan probably wouldn't be read. And in the eight hours until the morning when the new radiology staff comes on board, I might have a critical condition, I might crash and have to be raced back to the operating room at great cost, at great risk to my own life, so that they could address that issue and then finally get me back to recovery. Well, moving forward, we have to think, how can we do this better? This is the perfect opportunity for artificial intelligence. This is where artificial intelligence can help the care team to save lives. Now, what would that look like? This would be a deep learning algorithm. And this algorithm would first look and detect, is there a critical condition? Second, it would localize it, so it would draw the eyes of the care team exactly to the area of the scan that's important. And finally, it would quantify it so the care team knows Is this really grave or is this inconsequential and something just to keep an eye on? Well, in my case, it's a critical pneumothorax. That means my lung is collapsing. This happens 74,000 times a year in the United States. It is a great use case for artificial intelligence. There's a huge body of data and it occurs constantly. So as you think about this, you might be wondering, great, how did you create this algorithm? Keith, how could I create this algorithm at my company? At first, as Matt was saying in the prior presentation, we partner with great hospitals from around the world. Remember, I said we do business in 120 countries? That means our training data set needs to reflect all the lives of the people that we cover. And once we have all of those data relationships, we join the scan with the report, we de-identify it, and then we bring it into Edison AI Services. This is where, once it's ingested, we catalog it, we index it, and we secure it. And once we have a large enough, diverse enough data set that represents all those lives, we're ready for curation. And during the curation phase, what we're really looking to do is create ground truth for our data. And that means the care team, the physicians, the radiologists, they're all coming in, and what they'll do is they'll label each scan. Positive for pneumothorax, negative for pneumothorax. But we go further. We actually do pixel-level curation, where we circle where the pneumothorax was in my lung. Once we have this perfect ground truth data, We're ready to train. And we train in SageMaker. And we train and we train until we have a highly accurate model. And once we have that model, we're ready to deploy. And we love to take the same model and deploy it everywhere. So we will deploy to our health cloud that we built with AWS about four years ago. And there, you can imagine we're going to be doing telemedicine as a service algorithm as a service. So all those lives in Kenya, we can bring inferencing to them and a quick feedback. Or we can deploy to the edge. So imagine hospitals with tens of x-rays, maybe hundreds of x-rays across their network. They don't want to upgrade. They simply want to deploy an edge device and make the entire fleet smarter. Finally, we can do what I need tonight after my car wreck which is, I want this algorithm deployed on my x-ray so that at the point of care, before I ever get wheeled out of the emergency room, the care team is alerted to a condition and they can address it real time. Point of care is perfect as a use case. So why SageMaker? Why AWS? Well, we're not here to build one algorithm. We're building thousands of algorithms. And in order to do that, we need to ingest petabytes of data. And we need to store it compliantly. We need to have team upon team upon team working on curation with us. And we need to orchestrate that curation so that all of those projects move forward efficiently, effectively. As we go into training, our data scientists love to spawn tens of experiments on P2 instances. And what they're trying to do is winnow down from many to one highly accurate model. And once they find it, they flip over to a P3. And when they're on the P3 instance, they go from days of training to hours of training. And this makes them thrilled because they have a great pipeline for going faster. Finally, for deployment, as Matt was saying, we deploy everywhere, tens of thousands of devices a year. This means that we have to deploy on Windows. We deploy on Windows. <laughs> Windows Linux, not Winix. We deploy on CPUs. We deploy, when they're present, on GPUs. And on every device, we have a different memory footprint. So we have to optimize this model and optimize this model to target for every one of our end deployment targets. Now, spoiler alert, I'm going to survive my car wreck tonight. The care team is going to see my pneumothorax. They're going to address it quickly and effectively. And with artificial intelligence, we're going to save lives. Quality of healthcare is going to go up. The number of errors is going to go down. And that means that costs can come down. Now, this isn't just for X-ray. This week, we are announcing brand new algorithms for ultrasound, for MR, for CT, all built on SageMaker. And we are launching these at the world's largest radiology event out in Chicago right now. So I can't tell you how proud I am of our partnership here and what this means. For us, Our purpose is to improve lives in moments that matter. And with SageMaker and AWS, we're just getting started. Thank you.
1: Thanks, Keith. Well, we're pretty close to done for the evening, and I'm going to make it fast. But before we go, there is one more thing I want to talk to you about. We've talked a lot this evening about big instances, big big networks, but increasingly, customers are asking us to take care of server management entirely for them. For these customers, we offer serverless computing options, and I want to show you how we optimize our infrastructure for those. AWS offers the broadest range of serverless computing options. AWS Fargate, is a compute engine for the Amazon Elastic container service, which allows customers to run containers without having to provision servers or clusters. With AWS Fargate, you no longer have to provision, configure, or scale clusters of EC2 instances to run your containers. AWS Lambda lets customers run code directly without provisioning anything at all. You pay only for the compute time you consume. With Lambda, you can run your code on virtually any app, for any application or back-end service, all with zero administration. We've seen incredible demand for serverless computing, and more and more customers are running containers and functions at scale. At just three years after general availability, AWS Lambda already processes trillions of requests for hundreds of thousands of customers every month, and Fargate runs tens of millions of containers for AWS customers every week. When building services like AWS Fargate and Lambda, there's an important technical trade-off to consider. Some providers choose to run multiple containers and code for multiple customers inside a single server or virtual machine. This is tempting because it provides excellent efficiency and makes it easy to achieve low latency. However, a multi-tenant approach like this doesn't provide the high-security separation that a single-tenant instance or server would. For AWS, this is not a trade-off we're willing to make. The other approach is to run each customer's instances in code in their own instance or server. This provides the same security and isolation as EC2 instances, but makes it difficult to achieve the best performance and efficiency. When we launched Lambda, we chose to use dedicated EC2 instances for each of our customers. And when we launched Fargate, we chose to build each Fargate task in its own instance. This provided the security we needed, albeit at lower efficiency and higher cost for us. While this was a fine way to launch, we knew we would need to innovate in our infrastructure to eliminate this cost trade-off. We asked what a virtualization technology would look like if it was designed for containers. The result is Firecracker. Firecracker is a virtualization technology that is purpose-built for creating and managing secure multi-tenant containers and functional services, function-based services. Let me tell you a little about Firecracker. Firecracker is designed with a focus on security. Firecracker micro VMs work with the KVM hardware virtualization layer to provide the same security as a traditional virtual machine. Firecracker also implements a minimal device model, which excludes all non-essential functionality and decreases the attack surface of the micro VM There's no better way to improve security than by reducing the surface area. After security, Firecracker focuses on speed. Firecracker accelerates virtual machine creation time with a guest Linux environment specifically optimized for containers and Lambda. This enables fast startup times. Firecracker micro VMs initiate user space code in under 150 milliseconds. Finally, Firecracker is designed for scale and efficiency. Each Firecracker VM requires less than five megabytes of overhead, and this allows us to maximize density on a server. You can also create a lot of micro VMs. Firecracker can create 150 micro VMs per second per server. Finally, Firecracker also has built-in mechanisms to enforce fair sharing of the network and storage for even thousands of micro VMs. We're using Firecracker to reduce the cost and increase the performance of services like Fargate and Lambda. So you can see we're making the same deep investments in our infrastructure for serverless compute as we have for EC2 instances. But we believe that community goes hand in hand with innovation. So tonight, we're announcing Firecracker is available under the Apache 2.0 license. Firecracker micro VMs combine the security and isolation properties of traditional virtual machines with the speed and resource efficiency previously only available in multi-tenant environments. We are also working with the community to explore integrations with popular container runtimes like Containerd, Docker, and Kata containers. All right, we've covered a lot of ground tonight. We've talked about a lot of things. There are a number of technical sessions throughout the week if you're interested in going even deeper on the technology. There was one more slide, but the lights are coming up. This was meant to be a thank you. Thank you for coming this week. Thank you for spending your time with us. Thank you for your passion and your energy. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your reInvent. Have a wonderful night.